I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live right now or on our podcast online later. Thank you for joining us this morning. Come grab a seat. Yeah. It is my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church, and I'm excited to preach this morning. We are starting a new sermon series called Through Their Eyes. We're going to be looking at the Christmas story through the perspectives and the vantage point of the points of the different characters in the Christmas story. This series is going to be fun. Over the next six, seven weeks, we're going to look at the Christmas story through Mary's eyes, through Joseph's, through the shepherds, through Jesus's, through the Magi. And we're going to start the series today, Approaching Christmas Through the Perspective of Ancient Israel. My sermon this morning is entitled, Through Israel's Eyes. And here's what we're going to cover. I want to talk about Advent. I want to, I want to talk about Advent and what it means for ancient Israel, what it meant for ancient Israel, and consequently, why you should care at all about it. To begin, anybody else in here love Christmas time? I love Christmas time. It's my favorite time of the year. I love the decorations. I love when everything starts to come up. I'm one of those post-Thanksgiving people. I don't want to see anything until the day after Thanksgiving. But once Thanksgiving's good, I'm good. Let's get it all up. I love the decorations. I love the lights. I like when lights on houses. Just makes everything so much more beautiful. I love the music. I love Christmas music. Um, Charlie Brown Christmas album. The green vinyl record. I have it at my house. We're going to play it tonight. It's so good. I love eggnog. Southern Comfort eggnog is the best eggnog. I drink my eggnog from a goblet that I bought years back. I call it my eggnoblet. It's got a drink from my eggnoblet. Busting that out tonight with some Southern Comfort eggnog. I love the Christmas season. And there's something particular about this time of year that hits me every year. Her name is Amanda. No, I'm just joking. What, what hits me, what hits me, what I experience every year is how my busyness causes me to reflect on my calendar. You know what I mean? There's, there's so much going on during the Christmas season with friends and families and parties and shopping and vacations and holiday traditions, the whole thing. The season gets so busy that it gets me thinking about the nature of calendar and how calendar influences us. Calendar influences your soul. You see, for many Americans, the pillars that tie their, their calendar year together are things like New Year's Day and Valentine's Day and Spring Break and July 4th and Black Friday and Cyber Monday. But there's an alternative calendar that can tie our, years, our year as well t t together as well. It's an ancient Christian tradition called the liturgical calendar. And the, the pillars that tie this calendar together are things like Advent and Christmas, and Epiphany, and Lent, and Easter, and Pentecost. And the truth is, calendars have shaping power. And we get to choose what calendars shape our souls. We get to choose which ones have shaping power over us. We get to decide what will shape us throughout the year. Now, you might ask, what's the significance? Why should I allow these events to shape me over these ones? And one of the ways we can think about the liturgical calendar is it's kind of like a doctor telling you, you want to be healthy? Eat real food, food over processed food and, and drink a lot of water and exercise regularly and bring down your stress levels and get sleep. These are elements that are, that are weaved into our lives that provide a physical 
structure for, for health, correct? And similarly, Advent and Christmas and Epiphany and Lent and Easter and Pentecost, what these do is they provide a spiritual structure for spiritual health. And next week begins Advent. If you're not familiar with it, Advent is a season of preparation for Christmas. It lasts about four weeks long, and it's not simply about celebrating the coming birth of Christ. It's actually about the anticipation of leading up to the birth of Christ. And it centers, it roots, it grounds itself in, in, in this idea of like eager hope of God breaking into our lives. And my experience of Advent is that it has this really unique effect on us. As, as we look back to ancient Israel anticipating Christ delivering them, it causes us to look forward anticipating Christ delivering us. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going we're to take a closer look at Advent because Advent is precisely Christmas through Israel's eyes. This is what this is. Ancient Israel has a wild narrative, and what I hope you see today is that their perspective, their vantage point of the events that led up to the birth of Jesus, it was directly impacted by the centuries and centuries of pain and confusion and hell that they went through. So to show you Christmas through Israel's eyes, I want to show you their path from Haran to Jerusalem. We're going to do pretty much the Old Testament here in about 15 minutes. It's going to be pretty fun. So let's go way back, back to around 2000 BC in the first book of the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis. We read about this name, this guy named Abram, who later gets his name changed to Abraham. He lived in the city of Haran, just like his father before him and his father before him and his father before him. And God spoke to Abram. He said, leave your country, leave your family, leave your father's house, start walking. I'll tell you when we get there. Why? Because I want to bless you and I want to make you into a nation. God says, I want to bless you so much. I want to give you so many descendants that your family is going to be a nation. So Abraham leaves everything he knows. And when he's 100 years old, God blesses him and his wife with a son. And they name him Isaac. Isaac grows older. He begins his own family. He has a son, names him Jacob. As Jacob grows older, he gets his name changed to, anybody remember? Israel. So Israel grows older and begins his own family, and he has 12 sons. These are the children of Israel, if you've ever heard that term before. And these 12 men, they begin their own families who have kids, who have kids, who have kids. And scholars say that after generations and generations of these families multiplying, they're working with about somewhere between one and three million people. And this massive family lives in Egypt. Now, Egypt is the superpower of this day. And Pharaoh rules Egypt with an iron fist. So how he responds to the growing number of Israelites is he forces them into slave labor. And we read about this in the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Hebrew scriptures. In fact, many, this, and this is where the story gets good because many, many scholars actually argue that this is where the story of redemption begins. Like this is where the roots of our redemption happens. Exodus is about a people, a nation being rescued from slavery. It's here in Egypt where Israel cries out, who will come to our rescue? Maybe you've heard the story. God sends Moses to deliver them. This is the Pharaoh gets hit, his family, his house, his, his, his country gets hit by the 10 plagues. God parts the Red Sea. The children of Israel leave Egypt on dry ground. They walk into their newfound freedom. And it sounds like a great ending to the story, but it's actually just the beginning of their journey. 
because the journey then takes them to a mountain, Sinai. And this is where God makes covenant with the people of Israel. He says, if you keep my commands, if you keep covenant with me, you will be my people, I will be your God, and I will defend you, and I will be merciful on you. Now, these people don't do a great job at covenant. They're, they, they like to do their own thing, they like to do their own way, and they end up walking around the desert for 40 years. <laughs> it's a long story of them just like going circles. And generations later, after a lot of heartache, after a lot of war, the descendants, the descendants of these wandering slaves settle into the land that they were promised. And when they settle into the promised land, here's the progression that follows. They elect kings, they secure their borders, they erect walls, and Jerusalem eventually becomes their capital city. You guys following? I know we're moving through the story fast, but like this, this is how you got you to hear the whole thing for this thing to make sense. They're in Jerusalem. But once again, the people of God like to do their own thing, their own way, and they turn from God. You see, Israel, what happens is Israel forgets Egypt. They forget what it was like to be slaves. They get too comfortable. At the height of their power, Israel misinterprets God's blessing as favoritism, as entitlement, and they become indifferent to God. They forget that their calling is to liberate others that they were given influence and wealth and power, but they forgot why God gave it to them in the first place. You know, the Hebrew scriptures, it has, it's, a, it's a fairly simple message, this consistent message throughout. God always hears the cry of the oppressed. He's moved by human suffering. He cares about the conditions that cause human suffering, and he's searching for a community of people that will care about the things he cares about. People that, that he can entrust with power and blessing so that justice will be upheld for those who are denied it. This is what God is like. This is what God is about. And to forget this, to fail to hear the cry, to preserve privilege at the expense of the powerless is to miss who God is. Israel forgets. They forget who they are. They forget who, what their story is, where their ancestors came from. They used to be oppressed. Now they're oppressing. And this leads to exile in Babylon. The Babylonians invade. And they do a number on Israel. They pillage Jerusalem. They set fire to the temple. They destroy everything. Many Jews are killed. And anybody who survives, they're carried off into a foreign land to be slaves once again. As you can imagine, it doesn't take too long for Israel to remember what was the story of our ancestors? Oh, yeah, they were oppressed. They were slaves in a foreign land. And if God freed them then, he could do it again for us. So they cried out to God. And out of this desperation, these prophets began to rise up. And they, they were proclaiming this new message. God's going to bring the exiles home. It's going to be another exodus. It's going to be a second exodus. A remnant is going to come who's going to save us, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's going to deliver us. So Israel cries out to God. You ever hear the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? These are the words, O Come, O Come. This is what they're saying, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Ransom captive Israel. 
that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. The prophets announce we will rejoice again because God will deliver us again a new exodus, a new covenant, a new city of Jerusalem, a new temple. God's going to raise up another deliverer, but this one, he'll be from the bloodline of our beloved King David, a new king. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his reign, it'll extend far beyond Israel. It's going to cover all people, and his throne is going to last forever. So what started as this promise to one man and the deliverance of a people group, it became a promise for all humanity and the deliverance of all people. And this is how the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, come to a close. A group of people who lost it all, asking, what if we had it all back? Hovering promises. They're suspended. It's unfulfilled, this waiting. How do we get back to Jerusalem? Now, they do get back to Jerusalem. After years in exile, a significant number of Israelites eventually come home to Israel. They return to Jerusalem, they erect new walls, they rebuild the temple, but now they have a new problem, Caesar. Now the superpower of the day is Rome. And instead of the Israelites being hauled away to be slave once again in, in a foreign land, what, what the Roman Empire does is conquers Israel. And they begin this long, oppressive occupation of their nation. What, what irony here. That instead of being slaves in a foreign land, they're now slaves in their own land. Roman soldiers marching throughout town all the time, doing whatever they want, having to pay taxes to Rome. The Romans even built this military center right next to the temple, just a little bit taller, just to show them who's really in charge when they go to worship their God. See, Advent it often gets communicated as this exciting time of, of pre-celebration of the birth of Jesus. Jesus is coming, guys. Let's anticipate it. This is exciting. But that's not Advent through Israel's eyes. That's Advent through our eyes. Because we finished the story. We know how the end of the story goes. We know Jesus comes. We know he obliterates their expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. But he, he, he dies, right? He's murdered as an enemy of the state. He resurrects from the dead. He sends his spirit to live in his followers. We know all that. So we celebrate Advent. But through Israel's eyes, Advent meant pain. Advent was a cry of desperation. God, come save us from tyranny, from dishonor, from humiliation. This is first century Israel. A nation of people wondering where their God is. Asking, why is this happening again? We're home, yet we're still in exile. They're left clinging to hope. One day a new deliverer will come, the Messiah, and he'll set us free. Until then, we wait. Haran, to Egypt, to the desert, to Sinai. Sinai to the desert, to Jerusalem, to Babylon back to Jerusalem. This is Advent. 
hovering promises, suspended, unfulfilled, waiting. The invaluable lesson that Israel was forced to learn. When you're waiting for God to show up, wait faithfully. God is faithful. This is what they learned over centuries and centuries of pain. When you're waiting for God to show up, wait faithfully. God is faithful. They learned how to wait. Waiting is one of those constant, universal realities of life. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how old you are. doesn't matter where you live. we got to struggle with it. It's part of life. You wait in the grocery store. You wait at the DMV. Kids wait for birthday parties and for Christmas Day. Commuters wait in traffic. Editors wait for the file to render. (laughs) The devastated families wait for disaster relief teams. Homeless wait for the next generous car, the driver at the red light. Refugees wait to return home. Wait. It's the cry of Advent. It's the cry of millions today. A diagnosis a job opportunity, a wife or a husband to come home, or a birth or a death. Waiting. You ever notice, though, that Christmas time is a really crappy time to wait? It's a really inconvenient time for waiting. The calendar is busier. There's so much that needs to be attended to that's calling for my attention. I have less time to wait during Christmas time. And maybe that's exactly why we need to orient our calendar around Advent, to learn how to wait faithfully. Advent is a lesson in divine delay. We might even call it unanswered prayer. Those times in our lives where it seems like everything is collapsing, I'm at the end of myself, I have no strength left, and I cry out to God, but he appears apathetic to my pain. Maybe he's preoccupied with somebody else's pain right now at the moment. It's the feeling of being consumed by an emergency, but God doesn't seem to care much. I'm in need of some divine assistance. Show up, God. Anybody relate to that? Now, here's what tends to happen. We get frustrated in the waiting. So what do we do? We force quick decisions. We force an outcome, sometimes completely knowing we're going to have to clean up the mess of our rash decision, of our impulsiveness. And often we'd rather force an outcome rather than waiting in limbo, waiting faithfully for God to show up. Why? Because doing something feels better than doing nothing. Wisdom, experience, it shows us waiting is not doing nothing. And far too often... (laughs) Forcing something, it produces an outcome even less to our liking. Arya gets night terrors. She has, she's had night terrors in different seasons. If you've, ever seen, um, some, if you've never seen someone experience a night terror, it happens when they get into REM, um, where the body wakes up, but the brain still thinks they're sleeping, still thinks they're dreaming. So it's, it's pretty weird and wild sometimes. Um, eyes open. Arya will sit up, she'll walk around the room, she'll talk with us, she'll scream, she'll yell at us, and she won't even remember it in the morning. 
And as long as she doesn't hurt herself, they're harmless. Professionals say somewhere between 2 and 6% of kids get them. And I've heard to distinguish between a nightmare and a night terror, you just need to ask who's more disturbed in the morning. <laughs> if the kid is, it's a nightmare. If the parents are, it's a night terror. <laughs> and here's what professionals recommend. Don't wake them up. Don't wake your kid. Trying to wake them further agitates them. It actually prolongs the night terror. And even if you can get them to wake up, it disorients them even more, and it can take them even longer to get back to sleep. So what do professionals say to do? Wait it out. <sighs> Don't let them hurt themselves, but patiently wait it out. She'll eventually go back to sleep, and she won't even know about it in the morning. Ari's had some episodes lately that have been 15, 30 minutes long. And waiting patiently while she yells at me is really difficult. It's midnight. I had a long day. I'm exhausted. The last thing I want to do is get insulted by my three-year-old daughter. When she has an episode, I get annoyed. I get frustrated. I get impatient. And I have to coach myself in that moment. Wait. Slow down. Don't try to force something here. Causing something might actually make the situation worse. Just wait. And this is what Advent calls us to. Some self-coaching. I know you're inconvenienced, self. And you're annoyed and you're frustrated and you're impatient, but slow down. Don't try to force something here. Causing something to happen might make the situation worse. Just wait faithfully. And I admit, far too often, I beg God to do something so I don't have to wait faithfully. I'm not even ta I'm talking far beyond the night terrors. I'm just impatient, and I don't like waiting on you, God. Show up and do something now because I don't like learning to wait faithfully. Waiting sucks. But one of the things that, that gives me comfort in, in the waiting is that it's this theme in Scripture it's consistent throughout the entirety of Scripture. All the heroes of our faith, they seem to be well-disciplined at waiting faithfully. You read the Psalms. David sang laments like, God, why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. Why do you hide in times of trouble? I cry out to you. I get no answer. I cry out to you. I find no rest. The prophet Isaiah, he cried out, God, tear open the heavens and come down. Even Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? What's so necessary about learning to wait faithfully for God to show up in our lives? He could vindicate himself easily. Why doesn't he? Beyond just learning some general patience because we're adulting here, why the long, painful waiting? I'd like to suggest two reasons, two purposes at the very least, why God invites us to wait faithfully. The first one, over time, waiting faithfully dissolves our tiny view of God. It dissolves our tiny view of God. You see, in every age and every culture, human beings have attempted to, to create a version of God that we can deal with. <laughs> We want to create a form of God that we can cope with because what we're working with is an uncontrollable, all-powerful divine being. 
And that stresses people out. This being will not perform for me. This spirit, this essence is apparently not about giving me the life that I want. And it's in the waiting where we learn that God is not a genie. Where we learn that true joy is not achieved by making God give me what I want and fulfilling my expectations. I've learned that God does things his way in his time and for his purposes. His way, his time, his purposes. And if I can figure out how to let go of the three, my way, my time, my purposes, I'm far more content waiting. Just think of the story of Lazarus. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick from his sister. What does he do? He stays where he is even longer. Why? Emergency. God, wherever they're going, give them wisdom, faith, and healing. Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick, and he stays where he is even longer. Why? He wasn't indifferent. He wasn't apathetic to the suffering and the pain and the confusion of the family and the friends. He wanted to raise Lazarus from the dead, not just heal his sickness. Sometimes when God, God's watching death like sneak in, he appears to be even more at rest. My guess is sometimes he knows a resurrection is going to be far more potent than a healing, far more life-changing than a healing. And what seems like God's apathy is often divine design. God's delays are not due to a lack of concern. He might just have something in something bigger in mind than, than meeting our tiny expectations for him. He's constantly trying to dissolve away our tiny view of him so he can be him in our lives. Who are you? I am who I am. <laughs> That's what he told Moses. What, what does that even mean? <laughs> you won't confine me. Whatever you want to confine me to, you won't confine me. So waiting over time dissolves our tiny view of God. The second thing it does is it dissolves our tiny view of ourselves. Waiting faithfully dissolves our tiny view of ourselves. My experience with waiting is that it exposes what's really deep in my heart, what's true of my heart. It reveals just as much about me as it does about God. I'm impatient. I want my way. I don't like being inconvenienced. Waiting uncovers what happens when my expectations go unmet. So here's the uncomfortable truth. Waiting is one of the ways God reveals what stands in the way of me growing up. When I wait, God holds this mirror to to me and says, look at where you need to grow up, Josh. It sucks. It's so painful. So if I can open myself to God's work in me, to his voice in this situation, the tiny, distorted view of myself dissolves. And what's offered is new eyes to see myself as I truly am. You ever heard the story of the salt doll? The short version goes like this. A salt doll made a long journey to the sea. She got to the sea. She said, who are you? The sea replied, I'm the sea. The doll said, tell me more about you. The sea replied, you'll never know who I am until you swim in me. So the salt doll began to walk into the sea. And it was a curious sensation. The deeper she went, 
the more she dissolved into the sea. The salt doll was up to her neck, and she exclaimed, I know now who you are, but I also know now who I am. We are one. Our faith journeys are largely about breaking down this illusion of separation from God. You are in God. God is in you. Just like light coming from the sun, just like waves pushing out from the ocean, they push out from their source, yet their their source is always what makes them them. You'll never not be in God. It's simply a matter of you becoming aware of that and then resting in that. St. Augustine wrote, God, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Waiting invites us, like that salt doll, to step into the fullness of God and to rest in him. And as we do, the tiny, distorted view of ourselves, it, it dissolves away, and we're given new eyes to see ourselves as we truly are. We're one with him. I'm not what I do. I'm not how well I perform. I'm not the sum of my accomplishments, nor am I the sum of my failures. I'm the beloved of Christ. I'm honored and cherished as a child of God. I have divinity in my DNA. I was thought of before eternity, and then I was woven together in my mother's womb with the same stuff God made the stars. I was created by God to know God and enjoy God because I am his and he is mine. This is true of me, and this is true of you. The question is, will you rest in that? Now, maybe this is an uncomfortable season. Or maybe this is a beautiful season. Maybe maybe this is a wonderfully comfortable season for you. Life is clicking. You and God are clicking. Good on you. Soak it up. Be cautious. Don't forget what it's like to cry out to God. to be desperate for God to show up and deliver you. Don't forget where God brought you from, that he's gracing you so you will use your power and your blessing to stand with those who have no power and lack much. Don't forget. And maybe right now you're just surviving. Screw thriving. I'm just trying to stay alive today. I'm just trying to find the strength to make it to the next day. The job your family, your kids, your coworkers, your bills, the illness, the addiction, the depression. It's relentless. It won't give up. God, where are you? You call yourself a deliverer. Come do your job, please. If you find yourself there, the temptation is always to bypass the waiting, to force an outcome. But it's in the waiting where we discover God's depth of character and where we're given eyes to see ourselves as God sees us. Brendan Manning used to tell the story of a missionary family that was home on furlough. They were staying at a a friend's lake house. The father was messing around in the boathouse. The mother was in the kitchen. Three kids, ages 4, 7, and 12, they were playing on the lawn. And four-year-old Billy ran off without his siblings noticing. He wandered down to the dock. The shiny aluminum boat caught his eye. 
but he missed the dock and he dropped into the water. His sister screams. Dad realizes what happens. Comes running. Dad dives into the murky water. He's frantically feeling for his son, looking for his son. Two times he had to come back up and down to take a breath. Taking another breath, he dives down and he finds Billy deep, clinging to the wooden beam holding up the dock. And the dad pries his fingers loose and he returns to the surface with his son. He throws him on the shore. And after Billy catches his breath, his dad says, Billy, what were you doing down there? And Billy replied, I was just waiting for you, dad. I think this is such a beautiful image of waiting faithfully. Clinging to the wood in the murky water, holding his breath because he knows his dad is coming. Such a beautiful image because it it rests in deep trust that God has not forgotten you. That he hears the cries of his people and he meets them in their suffering. That he's always faithful. You see, the good news of Advent is that God is spectacular at taking things that look like they're dead or things that are even dead and causing them to flourish with life again. He makes beautiful things out of dust and ashes. He has life in his breath. He has hope in his eyes. He's got redemption in his palms. So waiting doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. It doesn't mean God hasn't heard you. Crying out is not a waste of time. God always hears the cries of his people, and he loves causing life to flourish again. So when you're waiting for God to show up, wait faithfully. God is faithful. I want to invite up a couple people for prayer I've talked to beforehand. And we're going to do something just a little bit different for response today. There's a song that Hillsong does called New Wine. And it's just been lingering on my heart lately. And listening to it over and over. And I was, I was prepping for this message. I was like, this is it right here. And I actually felt led this week to not have anybody play it in front of you, but to just play it on a off the phone or the iPad back there, just so you can rest in this. And I don't know what you need today. I don't know what it is for you that you're waiting for. Maybe it's something small um, that's not pulling too much on your heart, on your soul, but maybe it's something devastating. And during the song, we're going to have the lyrics up, and maybe you just need this song over you. Maybe you need to come stand with a brother or sister who will pray with you in that waiting. I just want to challenge you to sit in the presence of God and wait faithfully and allow trust and faith to rise in you. So whatever you need today, I pray during this response time, and I'm going to come up to close after this, that God would, would satisfy the need in the immediate moment of his presence even though you don't feel like the outcome has being met yet. So God, we give ourselves to you in this moment. Pray that you would meet us here, oh God. Amen.
lamenting to God. Praying, where are you? Show up. 
Why have you abandoned me? But you know how David most often finished those songs? After lamenting to God, he sang to his own soul. He sang things like, why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your trust in him. He's trustworthy. Who can stand against him? He's the almighty God. So wait faithfully for him. He's faithful. Maybe today you need to sing to your soul. Yes, God, where are you? Why are you letting this linger? Come deliver me, please. And soul, put your hope in God. Put your trust in him. Wait faithfully. He's faithful. I've been praying over you this week that hope would shelter your hearts, that you would be overshadowed with grace, and that as we move into Advent next week, as we reflect on Israel's journey from Haran to Jerusalem, and as you're waiting for God to show up, that you would find the grace to wait faithfully because God is faithful. God, you're faithful. If you're comfortable doing so, I want to invite you to stand with me and open your palms in a receiving posture to receive the benediction today. Dwell church this week. May your hearts be readied for Advent. That you would call out to God in your waiting with desperation for deliverance. And then may you wait for him faithfully. And this week, may God's spirit and presence dwell richly in you through faith. I ask this in the name and spirit of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. Go in grace, friends.